Number seven. This is a very common argument. And uh, remember, I've been emphasizing, and you guys are in complete agreement, one of the reasons we study this in detail and the arguments for the other side is personal work. You get out and try to talk to others. You mentioned, was it you, Dan, that the guy that's been visiting every now and then except the admin? So I guarantee you, if you study with him long, he's going to bring up this argument. Jesus kept the Sabbath. We're supposed to follow the example of Jesus, therefore we have to keep the Sabbath. What you guys come up with on that? I have Ephesians 2, 14, and 16. Give all of this question and empathy. That is, the law command is contained in this word. So it was in his flesh. Okay. Anything else? You got anything, Jimmy? Remember, though? Yep. Uh, I use much of the same answer to Number 6, Hebrews 9, 16, and 17, because it doesn't. Okay, I think I have that too. Jesus kept the Sabbath. Well, just like any other faithful Jew, Jesus also kept circumcision, the leprosy laws, the feast of unleavened bread. He taught others to keep all the law of Moses. But does that prove that we have to be circumcised today, keep the leprosy laws, the feast of unleavened bread? No. And and the reason we don't have to follow the example of Jesus in these particulars is the passage you just mentioned. Hebrews 9, for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption, redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Did you notice there, there's another verse besides Romans 3 that says that his blood covered the sins of the Old Testament. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator lives. So it's like a will. My dad passes, my dad leaves me something in his will, but I don't get it until after he passes away. Make sense? Yeah. Alright, number eight. Matthew 24, verse 20. I agree with Eric, I think it was the first night when he went to Matthew 24 and he said, that he thought there was a transition about verse 34 or 35. I believe from then on out he's talking about the second coming of Christ. But before that, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, verse 20, he says, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which would be 70 A.D., future to what Jesus is speaking here, about 30-something years, we'll not guess. The Septuagint used this to prove, well, see, he's saying in, that in 70 A.D. they're going to be praying that their flight be not on the Sabbath day. Therefore, that would show that the Sabbath would still be binding in 70 A.D., long after the cross. Got anything, Dennis? Yeah. I can see there's a strong argument. I agree. That's the one I think about more. I never come across that. And the one thing I got was prayer and that implies the fact that Jesus knew that uh, the church would start. Because uh, if he was forced forecasting the fact that suddenly he would be a destructive Jerusalem, then he knew that it would come. So he would also know that the church would be established by then. So that so then we are left to say, well, if he knew that, then why is he saying that we need to keep the Sabbath when we put all the other passages together? So he can't. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying pray that. So what he's doing, he's teaching us, uh, he's telling us that this is going to, this fast in which this is going to come. It's going to be fast, and it's going to be strong, and 
and it's going to be just, it's going to be a bad time. That's the first part of it. That's what my have to do. There's different things that I wrote here. If it didn't end at the cross, then there are no examples of breaking the bread on the Sabbath. So we are keep the breaking of bread is on the first day of the week. Okay. We've got more of that on there. Uh, and there's no, there's no, there's no uh, examples of Christians worshiping on, on the Sabbath, and yet we're going to be dealing with Paul with that in a minute. But I mean, now to explain that part there. So that's what I have. Alright, you got anything, Dan? Yeah, I think it's only 4, 9, 10. He says, uh, but now, I think you know how the context he's talking about that you are not to be following the old way. And he says, but now I think I've known God, verse 9, or rather I know by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beg of the elements for which you desire again to be in bondage to observe days and months and seasons and years? So they were still doing it then. And Paul is telling the wine to still observe it. And that's my best argument is that Jesus foresaw that it thought that they were still going to be looking at these things, even though they were not. Uh, and, and You're talking about the Christians. That's right. All right. Or, or whoever. But who would still be keeping the Sabbath? The Jews. The Jews would. And who was still in control of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Well, the Romans were besieging the city. They were had it under siege. The Jews were still in control until until uh, was it Titus whooped up on them and took it, and that's the 70 A.D. So, so we're talking about Christians living in Jerusalem. He says basically, he says when you see the abomination of desolation coming, that would be the Roman armies. Get out. Because we know now that they seized the city and you couldn't get out once they surrounded it and then they just starved them out. He said, you get out and flee to the mountaintops. That was the point. Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath because the Jews were still in control of the city and they would, uh, the Sabbath was still being kept even though it didn't need to be by God's law but the Jews were doing because they still hadn't become Christians. Notice this point. Um, look at Nehemiah 13, verse 19. Oh, yeah. When they lock the doors to keep the salespeople or the people that would come and try to sell on the Sabbath. Good. Thank you. Nehemiah 13, 19. I don't remember the part about the salesman. But they did close the gate on the Sabbath. It says in Nehemiah 13, 19, it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates would be shut, should be shut, and charged that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And some of our servants said at the gate that there should be no bird brought in on the Sabbath day. So, so the, the Jews then had this practice of closing the gates of the city on the Sabbath. Now, if the Jews, they're not Christians yet, are still in control of the city in 70 AD, and they still think they're bound by the old law, they're going to close the gates on the Sabbath to make it hard for the Christians to get out and flee to the mountain. You know what I'm saying? So even though the Sabbath was not binding by God, the Jews were still in control, they would close the gates on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus is saying you ought to pray that. Notice uh, some terms. Turn to Acts 20, verse 6. It was, it was in, 20, in, verse, in verse 20 of uh, 13? Yeah, read that. Now, merchants and silvers, and all kinds of wares, lost outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the labor on the walls? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. Okay, I didn't remember that. That's interesting. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 6. 
See, what, what their uh, the argument is basically since the term Sabbath is, is just mentioned in 78, therefore we're still binding. But look at Acts 20, verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them into Troas in five days where we abode seven days. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists don't believe the days of unleavened bread are still binding. I guess that's the uh, Passover. Uh, was there seven, maybe, seven days of unleavened bread during Passover? Anyway, I'm not sure I have that right, but Leviticus 23 would probably tell us. But anyway, so Paul says, and this is years after the old law has been done away, years after the days of unleavened bread is no longer binding, he still calls it the days of unleavened bread, because that's just what the time of the year was called. The what? Yeah, and the Jews would be uh, keeping it, would still be doing it. Like today, if somebody asked me when the Sabbath was, I'd probably say, well, Saturday, you know. That doesn't mean I keep it. Keep it. It just means that's what Sabbath was, the seventh day of the week. Also, if you have the same idea in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8, Paul called, uses the term Pentecost, but that doesn't prove it's still binding, see. The seventh day don't think the days of unleavened bread or Pentecost are still binding, yet that term was mentioned years after Pentecost went away as being binding. You see my point, how that's parallel to theirs? Another everyday example, I use the term Easter. Well, this particular day I said, well, Easter is tomorrow. That doesn't mean I celebrate that as a religious holiday. I just use the term Easter as a convenience because everybody else calls it that. You follow what I'm saying? Any other points or comments or questions or anything? I was thinking, I guess my thinking was, uh, if, if, if the Sabbath, if I could use it in applying the Sabbath, and in the context of the thing that on Sabbath, they weren't able to journey to the wolf as far as they could so far. So that's why I thought the argument would have been so good to say, and hope it's not on Sabbath that you go. So if you want to keep Sabbath, that's okay. So on Sabbath, how far there was so much. Fun. Yeah, like a mile or something. Yeah. So that would work. Uh, but uh, the fact that the doors were closed. Is, is a good one. I didn't understand. I didn't know that uh, they didn't. They, they, they kept on Sabbath. I guess I didn't. I didn't. You said it. I didn't uh, see the, the thought there. If they kept the Sabbath, but yet they didn't keep the law, or that the uh, the other Sabbaths were like yearly or mm-hmm. day of Pentecost, then how I got myself to the next one, the Apostle Paul going into the Sabbath, and that proves that he kept it. Well, actually, he talked about how that he was supposed to. He wanted to hurry up and make the day of Pentecost. Yeah, but I think you're making you're you're making uh, pretty much the same point, and we're going to talk more about that as we go along. Some of these questions, you're right. So we're on number nine. You remember Mr. Greg mentioned about in the first class about what do the Sabbatarians say when you bring up like a lot of these passages that say the law has been done away? They'll say. That's just a ceremonial law. So we spent a lot of time, especially in that first session, I spent a lot of time trying to show in each passage I was using as a proof text to show how it couldn't just be the ceremonial law that included the Ten Commandments or the Sabbath. Okay? So their argument is, and it's on the term basically, the law of God, I mean the, God, the law of Moses, which is the ceremonial law, passed, but not the law of God, which is the moral law. Do you see that? So when they see law of Moses, they say, yeah, that passed. The law of Moses passed, but not the law of God. The law of God would be like the Ten Commandments, according to them. So the Sabbath is part of the law of God, according to them. Therefore, we should still keep it. Because the only thing that passed away is the law of Moses. All right. You got a response? 
That's number nine. All right, that's a real good point. Shows it includes. At least that part of the commandment. You got something anything else in it? That's a good point. Let's look at this law of Moses, law of God distinction they make. Is there really a distinction in the Bible between the law of Moses and the law of God? I don't think so. I think they're really just two names for the same thing. It's really the law of God in the sense that he's the ultimate author, but it's also called the law of Moses in that God revealed this law through Moses. These terms are used interchangeably in Luke 2, 22 and 23. It says, when the days of her purification, I think it's talking about Mary here, according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem for presenting to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. You see? She was going, doing what the law of Moses says, and then it says, she was trying to fulfill it, it says, as it is written in the law of the Lord. So the law of the Lord and the law of Moses are the same thing there. Mary is doing with Jesus what she should be doing according to the law of Moses, according to the law of the Lord. Now, in Mark 7, verse 10, remember, the law of Moses is a ceremonial. The law of God is the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Mark 17, it says, Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. One of the Ten Commandments. See, Moses said. Well, that would be the law of Moses, right? According to their, their logic. Not our logic. Our logic is the same thing. If Moses was inspired, that if Moses said it, God said it. In Ezra 7, 1, it says, Ezra was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. And then in verse 6, it says, Ezra was a scribe of the law of God. You see how they used interchangeably? Nehemiah 8.1, to bring the book of the law of Moses. And Nehemiah 8.8, so they read in the book of the law of God. That, I believe, has to do with, uh, you know, getting the book and reading it. And it says he read it and gave the sense of it. But one place, it's called the law of Moses, and just a few verses later, the same book is called the law of God. Ezra 7.1, the law of Moses, which the Lord God had given. Second Chronicles 34.14, the law of the Lord given by Moses. <laughs> So this distinction they make between the law of God and the law of Moses, the ceremonial law and the moral law, it's really just in their imagination. They made it up. What do they use for defense? They don't have a defense. They just, this is, remember, I think maybe it was the first class, was it Dan that asked me what's their motivation or was it you, Dennis? And you said maybe it's just so they can have a list of rules and make it easier. And I said, I don't really know their motivation. But uh, what they do is they prey upon people. And this is something they can prey upon people because um, most people have no idea that you can do something like this. And so they'll just say, well, you, when, when they're talking to somebody that doesn't know much about the Bible, they'll say, um, you know, the Bible teaches the law of Moses is passed, but not the law of God. Those are two different things. And what is the person going to do? They don't have any idea what the Scripture says, you know. So they're preying upon people's ignorance. But you see... We're here to learn this because we knew this, but we didn't, we could not defend it like this mm-hmm. to this degree. And, and that's what it is about. Well, good. You'll have, and like I said, I'll give you my charts before we're over. And I don't know if Mr. Sutton deals with this specifically, but he probably does because he deals with almost everything. Right. That book has a lot of good material in it. And I'll get you all of my charts. All right? And, you know, I wouldn't have beat this up on this myself, except I had to debate it a few times, and so I had to study. 
And uh, I had to prepare for this before that book came out. But I had other things I used, books and uh, uh, bulletins and things, to uh, learn a lot of this stuff. Right, number 10, and I think Dennis has already alluded to this. Paul preached on the Sabbath long after Jesus' death. And we have three or four examples of this. So I give one, Acts 13, 14, following. He preached on the Sabbath, therefore we must worship on the Sabbath. And Dennis, did you have a, a, something about where he was going, something about Pentecost? Was that first thing? Uh, it's uh, last week. All right. Verse 16 says, uh, For Paul had decided to kill Pastor so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Okay. Your point is that improves that Pentecost is still binding today. Yeah, they don't believe Pentecost is binding today, but according to their reasoning, it would prove it, right? All right, go ahead. And the other one, if that's the case, then he worshiped with the. Uh, if being somewhere meant that he worshiped there, he would have worshiped with the Ahim. because he was right in the middle of all our God, and he said, "There's no." Well, we know that that's not what it was. He didn't. He didn't worship with the Ahim, and I don't think he would hold the fact. So just because you're somewhere doesn't mean you're worshiping. Right. So just that, the, the point, they're, they're assuming that because he used to come from there, that's what he went there for. And you'll see in a moment that that relates to how I deal with the two. Did you want to add anything to that, Dan? Um, no. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm looking, I guess I asked what was custom. That doesn't necessarily mean he was worshiping these fellows. Many times he preached in the synagogue to unconverted Jews. Yeah, he preached to them. He was trying to convert them. You know, he wasn't worshiping with them though. For example, if we us guys we were out in a community where all, everybody was a Seventh Adventist, and they let us preach on a Saturday at their church building, would we take advantage of it? Yeah, we, we would be worshiping with them. We would be, in a loving way, trying to persuade them with our sermon of what the truth is. And that's what Paul was doing. Sometimes to unconverted Jews, sometimes to unconverted Gentiles. Some of the time it was a doctrinal debate. When I have debates with the Sabbatarians or the Baptists or the gay church, I'm not worshiping with them. I'm trying to persuade them to get out of their error. It was always to try to convert people to the truth every time. And I mentioned here that I've actually had... uh, two or three occasions where I've been allowed to come preach to a Sabbatarian, a Sabbath-keeping church on a Saturday. And I preached to them. But that didn't mean I was worshiping with them or, or joining in worship with them, and I thought that was the day of worship. That was just because that's when they met, and there's nothing wrong with preaching on any day. Yes, Dan. Acts 13, verse And then when he's there, he preaches. They can't be justified by the law of Moses. I want to write that down. 
I don't didn't remember. Make sure that's the same sermon, because that would be a good point to add to my yeah to show right there that that not only was he trying to convert unconverted people, but he actually specifically was showing them that the Sabbath, well, the, the old law was no longer binding. Well, here's what I'm looking for. X thirteen thirty nine. Is that the verse? Is that what it was? Acts 13.39 and 13.4. Make sure, I want to make sure that's the same sermon. Okay, anything else? One other point I have on there. Yeah, Paul went to the synagogues on the Sabbath to preach or to debate, but when he worshipped with Christians, what day of the week was it? First day of the week. First day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7. Now, so the next one I have is very similar to that one. Lydia worshipped on the Sabbath, remember the ladies they were praying, after the cross in Acts 16, 13. Therefore, we should do the same thing. No. Either one of you. Well, I don't know what the Okay. That's it. The ladies are worshipping on the Sabbath. They're praying in Acts 16, verse 13. But she's not a Christian yet. But they use this as a proof text. It's strange how the Seventh Adventists will use somebody like Lydia, who's not even a Christian. They see her worshiping on the Sabbath and use that as a proof text that we're to keep the Sabbath today. But then when we see Christians worshiping on Sunday, actually, to be more correct, the first day of the week, I doubt they call it Sunday, the first day of the week in Acts 20, verse 7, and we see that the Christians took up a collection on the first day of the week, they don't think those things are valid. But if they find a non-Christian praying on the Sabbath, they do. That's a very good point. I see, 39. I have, good people still worship God ignorantly, according to the Jewish dispensation. Lydia was not as yet a Christian at this point. Another example of this is, a, is Apollos in Acts 18. You remember that. He was preaching the baptism of John long after that went out of effect. But did, did that prove the baptism of John was still valid, or did it just prove that Apollos, sincere as he was, he needed to be Corrected, and he was. And Lydia was evidently corrected. She became a Christian. And another thing about praying on the Sabbath in Acts 16.13. You, you pray, I guarantee you pray every Sabbath, don't you? At least once or maybe 10 or 12 times. I pray every Saturday, you pray every Saturday. There's nothing wrong with praying on the Saturday, on the Sabbath. We do that. But when the Christians come together for worship and eat the Lord's Supper, that was on the first day of the week. All right, next one. This may be a little more involved. We've been covering those two or three, last two or three pretty quick. Hebrews 4, this is their argument. Hebrews 4, 4 through 9, shows that the seventh day rest or the Sabbath is still binding. So let's turn over there. Hebrews 4, and we'll look at 4, 4 through 9. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Read that for us when you get there, Dennis. Hebrews 4, 4 through 9. For he hath spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in his letter. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in his place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, and again, or rather again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time, as we have said, have been said, today if you will hear my voice, do not burn your hearts. And 
40 more. Then he would not have to work to have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Okay, so the text we just read talks about God resting on the seventh day. And in this last, the last verse is, there remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. As if, see, the Sabbath is still binding. You see how they make the argument? Yeah. All right. This is one of their favorite affirmative proof texts, you might say. Hebrews 4. What do you all want to say about it? Verse 3 has an additional word, if. If Joshua had given them a rest, then you would not afterwards have spoken of another day. So the day of rest that this passage is talking about is not the one of Joshua's time, but it is the new rest. That's right. And it's not going to be here on earth. It's going to be here. It's going to be heaven. Talk about another day, another Sabbath. That's right. I agree with all that. Good point. Anything else before I put my chart up? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. The Hebrews 4, 1 rest. Oh, first of all, you know, when we find rest here, it's not exactly the same word as what was translated Sabbath. The word actually, the Greek word for Sabbath is not actually in this chapter. It's similar, but it's not the same word. Okay? Mr. Walton, if he were here, could tell, probably tell us what the difference is. The Hebrews 4, 1 rest, promised to Christians, is compared to the promised land rest for the Israelites in Canaan, chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. It's compared to God's rest on the seventh day of creation, which is the first verse that Dennis read. Now, Christians receive this promised rest, the one promise in Hebrews 4, verse 1, you know, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should come, seem to come short of it. We receive this promised rest if we don't come short of it, verse 1, they labor to enter into that rest, chapter 4, verse 11, and they don't fall at the same example of unbelief, chapter 4, verse 11. This rest, then, is a promise that we receive if we labor. But that's not what the Sabbath rest was. The Sabbath day rest was a command to be obeyed. This is a rest that we'll receive if we obey command. Whereas the Sabbath day was a command to be obeyed. You see the difference? Just like sometimes we make this point on Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism was not a command to be obeyed, but a promise to be received. You follow me? That shows it's different than water baptism. This rest is not a command to be obeyed like the Sabbath. It's a promise to be received. And that leads me into my next point, which Dennis has already said. This rest, which is compared to the, the, to the rest of Canaan, the promised land, and the rest of creation, this rest is heaven. This is what we labor to enter into, is heaven. And when we get to heaven, we will be able to rest from our labors, as long as we don't fall after the same example of unbelief. Here's some, uh, here's some verses that use that same word in referring to heaven. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven, heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. You see the point? That's exactly what's going on in Hebrews 4. We need to do what God says and be obedient. And if we do, we'll enter into the rest of heaven. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So there's two categories here. There's the people that don't obey the gospel. They're going to be punished. But the people who are obedient to the gospel will find rest 
with us. That's in heaven, isn't it? Any other questions or comments? Point? That's a good point. I never thought of the fact that uh, uh, the rest as a result of our labor and the other one is the command. Yeah. Same with the Holy all right, number 13, 1 John 2, 4. Let's turn over there. Oh, and they use this so much, and Dan, you're going to ask me again. Well, to me, I think you're going to ask me, well, how can they use this? And they prey upon the ignorance of people. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, Dan, you want to read that? Did I? Yeah, 1 John. He who says, I won't get that does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not with him. So, we have to keep God's commandments, right? Does the Bible say here in the New Testament we have to keep his commandments? Well, so we have to keep his ten commandments. <laughs> there you go. You see, what they do is, when they're talking with this person that they're praying on, who's ignorant, ignorant they'll say, we've got to keep the commandments. And, of course, it's easy for them just to shift just a little bit and say Ten Commandments. Because most denominational people are brought up thinking, what are the commandments? Sometimes they think the Ten Commandments. That's what they think, you know. Because those are the ones that are prominently displayed. It's almost as if you want to be a good Christian, it's okay if you mess up here, sin here, sin here, as long as you keep the Ten Commandments. Those are the commandments, the ones that are really important. You know, the Baptists and the Methodists, all of them seem to teach that. So they twist this from commandments to the Ten Commandments. Uh, Did y'all want to make another point on that? Dennis has already made the the main point that I would make is, what about all the other ones? Well, that's one of the main points. There's not just ten in the Old Testament. Let's see, what chart number is that for me? That's number 45, I think. I say these verses are certainly not referring to the Sabbath. Nothing about the Sabbath is mentioned in this whole book. And here's the point that Dennis was making. If these verses were talking about Old Testament commandments, they would include all Old Testament commandments, including animal sacrifices for sin. It didn't say Ten Commandments. It says commandments. If that's about the Old Testament, there's a lot more. As a matter of fact, I read in a book somewhere where somebody had counted that there are actually 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Not ten, there are 613. Now, they may have it off by four or five, but it doesn't make any difference. We see the point. If this is talking about the Old Testament, that means you've got to keep all 613 of them, including all the ones, remember, in that first day we talked about the animal sacrifices, the Passover, the, the law of the year of Jubilee, all those different things you'd have to keep if that's what this is talking about. But we know what it's really talking about. It's talking about all the New Testament commandments is what it's talking about. And notice the passage that we've uh, been over, and I think Dan uh, mentioned it just a while ago. Well, you mentioned Acts 13.39. This is Acts 15.24. For as much as we have heard that certain went out from us who have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. See, in the New Testament times, we're not given a commandment to keep the law. So this is obviously not the commandments of the law, that is, the old law. It's the commandments of the new. And another way that they're easily, people are easily preyed upon is because, y'all have experience with this, the normal denominations, the average way, has watered down the importance of obedience to God. And it, they never speak of, of salvation or our service to God in the form of commandments, because that would be a, quote, work salvation. You know, They never talk about how it's important to obey commandments under the new law. You know, it's just all grace, and God will take care of everything. 
So a lot of people don't even realize there are any commandments in the New Testament, you know. Commandments, that stuff is in the Old Testament. Today, we don't have to do anything, you know. So I think that helps make it easy for Seth Adventists to teach this denominational purpose. Person, if it says commandments, it must be talking about something in the Old Testament. Any other points? I think a good point there, and we can go a lot faster. We can use that as a guide on board, springboard, to try to show under which authority we are now. To whom we gave those such commandments. Taking precedence over the commandments of Moses. Well, where did that happen? When Jesus received the Spirit, and God said, He's here, He's here. So therefore, that takes us back to Christ. So there's going to be a difference there, and we can get to it. So that's a good that. All right, I think I might have mentioned this. This is one of the more popular ones. Um, I, uh, Brent, who was here the first night, he's my brother-in-law, I mentioned, and uh, one or two others, we've been doing a radio program in Huntsville uh, since about 1986 when I moved here. And there's a Seventh-day Adventist college in Huntsville. It's called Oakwood College. And, so, and it doesn't really make any difference, but this radio station caters to the black community. And this college is a black college. And so a lot of our callers through the years have called in are Sabbatarians. And they almost without fail, if we tell them, well, the Bible teaches we're no longer under the Ten Commandments, so the phone will just start ringing off the hook and they'll say, well, if the Ten Commandments are no longer binding, then, then that means it would be okay to kill and steal and commit adultery and all that. Do you see their argument? All right. How would y'all respond to it? That's number uh, 14. Okay, so the point of Romans 6 is that we made a, com- a, a commitment. When we were baptized, we made a commitment. He's saying, you should follow through with that commitment. Don't think that the more you sin, the more grace there is, and that's what you should do. Okay? So you're just saying that the New Testament tells us to live right. It doesn't mean that sin is going to become rampant because the New Testament teaches that sin is not the cause. It's all not of the All right. Therefore, but in the same context, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. So specifically saying they're not under that law. Okay. Even under the new law, there is still no law of sin. Okay. Anything else? Dennis? I mean, this argument almost says that if there's no Ten Commandments, there's no law there. That's right. Well, that's what the Seventh-day Adventists believe. Really. They believe really the only law that's important is the Ten Commandment law. What about Christ? Well, all Christ. He kept the Sabbath. Meaning, they really don't pay much attention to any of the laws except the Ten Commandments. So I guess by the end of the law, the emphasis is that the fact is all they care about. Yeah, pretty much. But of course, some could accuse us of only caring about water baptism, you know, because we emphasize that. Because, and the reason we emphasize that is because it's, it, when we run into people, that's a common error, so we end up emphasizing that. But, but you, I think you see my point. Here's a, chart, a couple of charts. I think you've probably heard this illustration. I, I didn't come up with this, but I like this illustration. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit harder for you guys in Canada, but you'll, you'll get it. The third, there are 13 colonies. I don't know if y'all have any United States history. Before, we'll say 1776, which is our day we decided we were going to get out from England, the 13 colonies were under the law of England. When we broke relationship with England, we severed responsibility to her law. When our lawmakers, Thomas Jefferson and all those guys, drafted a new law, they placed some of the good principles of English law in it. 
But this didn't obligate them to adopt the entire English law, nor did it obligate the free citizens to continue observance of that old law. So when a law is abolished, and in this case we abolished the law of England as being binding to us when we went through the Revolutionary War. When a law is abolished, it is completely abolished. If any principle of the old law is being new, it must be adopted therein. This, of course, must be so stated in the new law. So if you think of the illustration with the law of England, the law of England was two laws. One, don't kill. They had a law against murder. Two, they had a law that we had to pay taxes. Have you ever heard of the Boston Tea Party? So we didn't like those taxes on our tea. You have to pay taxes to the king. Now, when we rebelled, when we had the Revolutionary War, we got out from under their law completely. We're, never, we're no longer under the law of England at all. Did that mean it was okay to kill? Why? Because the law of the United States covered that. What about, do you have to pay taxes to the king? No, because that was part of the old law, but not instituted in the new. Of course, we're, we're worse off because we're paying a lot more money to the president now. But anyway, you see the point? The law, so it's like that with the old law and the new law. The old law was completely abolished. Even the law that says don't kill in the Ten Commandments, that was gone. But the reason it's wrong to kill is because the New Testament says it's wrong to kill. Just like it was, the law of England said don't murder, but the reason it's wrong for us to murder, besides being that it's the law of God not to murder, but civilly the reason it's wrong to murder is because the United States law says don't murder. Not because the law of England. We're not under that anymore. Any, any, any more comments about that? So you've probably seen this chart. Here's a listing of the Ten Commandments. No other God. It's in the New Testament. No graven image. You find it in the New Testament. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor father and mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. You can find verses. I'm sure more than one verse on all these things. Don't bear false witness. That would be like lying. Coveting another man's wife. All nine of the Ten Commandments are in the New Testament law. But one is conspicuously absent. One law out of the ten is not in the New Testament law. And he's never, I'm sure, he's not a king, actually. And he's never able to give a good argument like this. No. You know, you know, we have sermons. Y'all preach sermons, and I get to preach some sermons. A debate, there's supposed to be a purpose of why we're having a debate. Here's what a debate is. Usually, I like to prefer one session to include three 20-minute speeches by each speaker. That's a total of six 20-minute speeches. Two hours. So if I speak first... And I make argument number one. Here's what a debate is designed for. Then let's say the next guy's named James. He's supposed to, of course, he may make his own arguments, but he's supposed to respond, reply to argument number one, right? Then I have, remember, we have all these speeches. And there is a bathroom break in there. You guys don't worry about that. Then, then if the debate goes by his plan, then I'll have to spend some time in my next speech responding to his reply. You follow? Then in his speech, he's supposed to respond to this. You see how each one? And so you get deeper and deeper in the argumentation. Then I respond to that, and he responds to that. So ideally, if you have six speeches, it's supposed to follow that if I make an argument, he responds to it, I reply to the response, he replies to that reply. That's why you have a debate and just not two guys just get up there and do two sermons. They're supposed to be responding. Most of the time what happens, though, is I make a, uh, an argument and they just ignore my argument and then James, he'll get up there and make his own argument. So he makes his argument. 
Then I get up there and respond to what he said, and then also mention that, you know, here's some of my arguments. He hasn't responded to any of them, and uh, he needs to do that in his next speech. But they don't do that. Generally, they just get up there and preach. Sometimes they'll have all three speeches all prepared ahead of time. So no matter what I was going to say, they were going to speak. Say this in their first 20 minutes, this in their second 20 minutes, and this in their third. You know, so, so we're spinning our wheels when they do it that way. So to answer your question, Dennis, many times I make these arguments and debates, and they never end up responding to them. Now, we might conclude they can't answer them. Why wouldn't they respond to them? So it would be my job as a debater, after I make the argument, and then they don't fail to respond to it. If they respond to it, then I need to tell what's wrong with their response. But if they don't, it's my job as a debater to point out to the audience that they haven't responded. If they do that twice in a row, to keep pressing that so that the audience knows that he's not responding. Because if the audience, if you don't tell them, they might not realize that there's been a lot of arguments that have gone left unanswered. So a good debater, and I'm not really a good debater, but I try as hard as I can, a good debater. Now, Mr. Sutton, who wrote this book, he's a good debater. If you ever get a chance to hear him in debate, go see. I'm going to get access to the debate. I've never Okay. Well, because the reason you probably don't have there's not many preachers in the denominational world willing to debate anymore. But I'm going to give you my website where you can get my debate charts. And I think I told you maybe yesterday or the day before, I have about 50 of my debates on there, audio, in MP3 format, where you can download them. And I've got them in 16 kilobytes per second so that they're not so big. Do you all have fast internet or just dial-up? Okay, good. So each 20-minute speech, since I put it 16 kilobytes per second, is only about 2 meg. So it'll download pretty quick. And I found that with, uh, with, uh, with speaking, 16 kilobytes per second, it's clear enough. It, like I was telling somebody the other day, if you're doing music, you'd want it at a better ball rate. But, but anyway, so I keep it low like that so that people can download it quicker. So I've got about 50 of my debates on there, and you'll be able to go download all those for free. Multitudes of different topics, including one on the Sabbath, I mean two or three on the Sabbath probably. I'll get you that website. It, hopefully I'll just do it in just a moment. I'll let you write it down. Let's go to number 15. Exodus 31:18 says the Ten Commandments are written with the finger of God. This shows that these commandments are still binding while the Old Testament laws not written with the finger of God have been done away. Response? That's awesome. I don't know. 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 I we saw that in 2 Corinthians 3, too. Remember all those done away yes. things? Remember that? We went through 2 Corinthians 3 and showed that left side was the table of stone, written engraved in stone, compared in, in opposition to the New Testament, and then all these terms that apply to this. So the thing in the stones was done away, done away, abolished, done away. Uh, and that's right. right. Okay. Anything else? Take up? You know, there's something called a syllogism in logic. I usually call them syllogisms. But they have major and minor premise. And basically, their, their major premise needs to be this. Well, let me move on. To, let me see if I can get to another chart. 
Let's look at this chart. Written with the finger of God. First of all, it makes no difference who literally wrote the Ten Commandments. And by the way, when Moses did throw those down and break them, and the second time, it's kind of unclear. Some passages make it look like Moses wrote it. Of course, through the inspiration of God the next time with his own, and that God didn't really write it the second time with his own finger. But that's, I think, debatable. But it doesn't really make a difference who literally wrote the Ten Commandments, because, you know, when the big boss, Bill, y'all know who Bill Gates is, boss of Microsoft, when he writes out a memo, but the secretary writes it for him, who's considered the author? He is, even though she wrote it. Where does the Bible ever say something literally written with the finger of God proves the law is divine? That's what they need to say. Okay, they say it's written with the finger of God, okay? Where does the Bible say that if it's written with the finger of God, then it's going to be binding forever? You know, it doesn't say that. Do you remember in John 8 what Jesus literally wrote down with his finger on the ground? We don't even know what that is, much less it's still being binding. You know, it never even tells us what it is. And then the point that Dan really made, 2 Corinthians 3, that written and engraved in stone was done away and abolished. That's from 2 Corinthians 3. We just would have looked at that chart. Now, okay, so they're saying the things written with the finger of God are still binding, but the other ones aren't. What about homosexuality, the condemnation of that? That wasn't on the Ten Commandments tablets. That wasn't written with the finger of God. According to their argument, that means you can be a homosexual today. You see what I'm saying? Because only the things written with the finger of God are the things that are important, that are really binding. What about having sex with an animal? What about drunkenness, sex before marriage? What about the idea that you have to believe in Jesus? That wasn't literally written with the finger of God in John 3.16. According to their logic, though, those things aren't important, aren't binding anymore, because they weren't written with the finger of God. Y'all follow me? Now... Well, I said down here, the Bible never makes the argument that just because something is written literally with the finger of God, that it will always be binding. God wrote all of the Bible. It is all important. Whether or not he used a secretary to do it or not, it doesn't make any difference. And that's what Paul was when he was writing the secretary, in effect. God told him the words to say, right? Now, I don't have this. This is beyond number 15, I don't, but it's a related argument. I didn't ask y'all to do this one, but they make a similar argument. They say the Ten Commandments are put inside the Ark of the Covenant. But the other laws weren't. And that's supposed to show us that the Ten Commandments are still binding, but the other laws aren't. But again, I make the same argument from the same argument that I made on the last chart. The prohibition against homosexuality and sexual relations with animals, that wouldn't put inside the Ark of the Covenant. It was put on the side of the Ark. Does that mean it's okay to commit sex today? It would, according to their reasoning, right? Here's why I was talking about a syllogism. In a syllogism, you have a major and minor premise and a conclusion. Here's how their syllogism would have to work. All commandments put inside the ark are still binding today. That would be the major premise. The minor premise, the Ten Commandments were put inside the ark. Conclusion, therefore the Ten Commandments are still binding today. That would be the syllogism, or syllogism as I like to call it. The only problem is they're assuming the major premise here. There's no verse that says, if there were a verse that says... All commandments put inside the ark will be binding so the earth is burned down. Then they have a point, but there's, the major premise is never taught in the Bible. It's true enough the Ten Commandments were put inside the ark, but the major premise is never taught. Any other questions or comments? Let's see. I told you. Now, you got homework for tomorrow. We're going to start the deity of Christ. And here's my website. The uh, buttons, the number buttons aren't working very well on this computer, Greg. Like, I'll hit 29, it won't go to 29, but 
You go down through yours just hit the return key, right? Straight through? Okay. Okay. Oh, the remote? Okay. So you'll be okay. This is my website, www.bibledebates.info. So you can go and get debate charts, download debate charts on many different topics, including this Sabbath topic, Deity of Christ. When you get to that site, on the left, it'll have a navigational bar, and it'll say Debate Charts. Click on that, and then you'll, it'll bring you to a list of all 20-something subjects that I have debate charts set for. And when you click on one, like the Sabbath, then it'll ask you, I can't, maybe right-click to save or left-click to open, but it'll give you a Microsoft Word document with each of these chart as one page in a Microsoft Word document. I have a little macro in there that, I, that turns this Microsoft Word document into a presentation like PowerPoint. There's nothing in Microsoft Word, actually as Microsoft sells it, to put it in a presentation mode. So I just wrote a little, it's sort of like a computer program to, to do it. Uh, but I, as I said, there's audio debates there too. Under debates, instead of charts, go to audio and you get uh, a number of my debates, I've got my PDA out in the car now, I take my PDA and record it in MP3 format directly. That's a whole lot better than doing cassette tape. You know, I, people used to, I had to, used to have to mail out cassette tape just constantly, all the time, people requesting debates, and I always did it for free, and I didn't mind that, it's just it was a lot of trouble. It's just so much easier now. When somebody asks me for a debate, if they have, sometimes I still have to mail it out, because maybe they're not computer literate, I just say go to this website and download it. And they can burn a CD if they want to to listen to it or whatever. So you can go there. There's my uh, uh, email address, my telephone number. If you guys ever want to call me or talk to me anytime. Y'all got some homework for tomorrow, and I'll look forward to seeing y'all tomorrow at 3:30. Though I'm not gone, I'm staying here, but I'm just.